Hi there. Welcome back to the Real Film Chronicles podcast. As always, I'm Nathan. And I'm Brian. And in today's very special episode, we're going to be talking about a little film called The Banshees of Inishirin. Very excited for this one. Everything was fine yesterday. Two lifelong friends find themselves at an impasse when one abruptly ends their relationship with alarming consequences for both of them. The Banshees of Inishirin came out, uh, like what, late 2022? It's directed by Martin McDonough, who has done a handful of films. Most recently, I think, is at Three Billboards. Yeah, four feature-length films, I believe, and then four one of them? short, I think. So we got Three Billboards, In Bruges, and Seven Psychopaths. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I've seen all of these. I But, uh, I mean, In Bruges, I feel like that's like an internet cult film. A lot of people talk about that. I missed it when it came out. I, I didn't watch it until maybe the past couple of years. And it's solid. And Three Billboards, I think, won a whole bunch of Oscars and awards. Like, it's a really good film. Did you? Did we watch Seven Psychopaths? Uh, I watched Seven Psychopaths. Uh, actually, I was going to say, yeah, Martin McDonough has been uh, one of those people who I've been watching his films. And he's one of those directors that just keeps getting better and better. And I was going to say, like, Seven Psychopaths. I'm not, I was going to say, I'm going to say right now. I'm stating it. it here and now. Seven Psychopaths is one of my, it's going to be one of my comfort films. Um, if I'm feeling down or depressed, I will throw on Seven Psychopaths and yeah. I will, everything will feel right in the world again. It's up there for me. <laughs> like I know like Jaws and the Abyss, um, Seven Psychopaths is another one that these might be weird comfort films for, for some people because maybe they're not, uh, maybe the subject matter <laughs> is not yeah, particularly yeah. comforting, but there's just something about... Uh, the way Seven Psychopaths is made, the way the characters interact, the dialogue, the filmmaking. I feel like I'm nestled in like a nice warm blanket. I'm transported <laughs> somewhere to this to this weird, crazy world that uh, McDonough's created for, you know, the two hours, um, two hours plus. Yeah, but every every one of his movies so far for me has been just, yeah, just great. Um, incredibly rewatchable. And I think... Uh, the Banshees of Inisherin is is no different. Oh yeah, starring Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson, who have worked with McDonough in the past, obviously in Bruges, and I in think Bruges, Colin yeah. has worked with them on Seven Psychopaths as well. He was the main character in Seven Psychopaths. Yeah, him yeah. and Sam Rockwell. Yeah, and if and if IMDb trivia can be trusted, which it probably can't, but <laughs> it, it says like both of them basically signed on for Banshees like five, six, seven years before it came out. Which is, I mean, a testament to how much I think they really respect the director. I mean, he the, Martin also wrote all these movies too, I, I believe. At least Banshees, he wrote and directed. Yeah, he's also, I, I was doing some reading after watching um, Banshees. He's also a playwright. I think he start, He may have started out as a playwright. But I think Banshees of Inishirin um, was part of almost like a trilogy of okay. in, Inish movies. There was a couple of, or not Inish movies, but Inish pieces there's yeah. a couple other, I think two other plays, which I think Carrie Condon, who's in this movie, she was actually in, she starred in one of those, uh, okay. um, the the stage, not stage adaptation, it's, it's literally a, a play that he had written. And when I when I'd read that about him, yeah, something cl- made a lot more sense in terms of like how his movies are structured and how like the dialogue is structured. They feel like, not in a, not in a bad way, it feels in, in a very positive way, but they feel like movies that... A playwright would have written 
right? Yeah, yeah. It, it kind of it kind of makes a certain kind of sense in how how they're structured. This this guy is prolific, a director, director writer combo, and I like that he seems to be really taking his time. Uh, he's only got four uh, feature films to his name. Uh, in Bruges came out at least ten years ago, if not more than that by now, right? Ten. 12 uh, years I also, ago? yeah i don't i don't recall more than that but like in that space of time he's directed i think i think he wrote and directed all four of those movies right uh, in bruges seven psychopaths three billboards outside of ebbing missouri and the banshees of inishirin yeah so in bruges came out in 2008 2008 seven psychopaths <laughs> in 2012 <laughs> and three billboards in 2017 so yeah he's definitely yeah but i i like he seems to be one of those directors who is all about the quality versus more than the quantity, which is, which is great. It's refreshing in this day and age. I oh yeah. Say. These are, these are fine films and Banshees of Inishirin is, is a banger. Like this movie, like I'm not going to hold back. This was a really good film watching this for the first time. I did. <laughs> I, I managed to get to see it in theaters. I didn't really know what I was getting into because uh, you try and stay away from a lot of trailers and a lot of hype. Watching this in theaters and be like, oh my goodness, this is something else. This is a dark comedy with some some pretty interesting themes around, you know, friendship and, and mental illness. It was just presented in, in such a compelling way. The the actors like Colin Farrell really he does such a bang up job in this movie. He's fantastic. Brendan Gleason, always fantastic. And the sporting cast here, yeah, Carrie Condon and Barry Cogan as well. Oh. Barry Cogan, yeah, that that kid is. This guy is on he's fire. going places. Yeah. yeah, he could do no wrong at this point. And yeah, I mean, basically, where does this movie even start? I mean, it's essentially it is Brendan Gleeson's character, Colm, just saying, you know what, I'm done with this friendship with Colin Farrell, uh, who who's uh, Padrick, Padrick or Padrick, 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 Padrick. You gotta say it with an Irish accent. You gotta go like Patrick. Well, this Patrick? is the thing. What I was looking it up, uh, I'm looking up all the names and like uh, uh, Colin Farrell's sister in this movie, Carrie Condon. Uh, her name is Siobhan, is how it's pronounced Siobhan. in the movie. Yeah. But what I'm looking at it on on like IMDb, it's just like the spelling. It's is... It's written like Cioban, right? But it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a yeah. I mean, I'm just I'm not familiar enough with my Irish to do any of the names justice uh, <laughs> throughout this. Yeah, we're definitely we apologize to Ireland, uh, the people yeah. of Ireland. We are going to butcher at least some of these names as we're going through. It's not intentionally, just because yeah, yeah. we're we're dealing with our our Canadian the limits of our Canadian accents uh, <laughs> <laughs> only go so far here. Yeah. So it, it's calm. Just say, you know what? I'm done with this friendship, and he just tells Patrick to just get it, get out. Like, just stop talking to me. And that's that's just it. And I, I it plays out in in in, in funny ways and disturbing ways. Like it gets escalated fairly quickly. It's really it's really neat. I mean, what were your first thoughts when you watched this movie for the first time? Yeah. So. Despite being a fan of Martin McDonough uh, from the get-go here, the overall plot description or the description of the movie that I had read didn't seem all that interesting or engaging. Yeah. I was I, I did, actually did enter the movie with a little bit of trepidation, even though I was a huge fan of his already. Um, I needn't have been worried. 
I think part of the part of the problem was trying to capture the intricacies of uh, this movie um, in one of those, you know, internet plot descriptions, like yeah, one yeah. sentence lines is incredibly hard because it is so uh, thematically rich. And this is, um, you know, it's a character driven piece. It's about relationships between not just the two main characters, Colm and Pedrick, but between everybody living on that uh, island of Inisherin. I was absolutely like you. I'm going to leave no holds barred. You know what I think of your your movie, Mr. McDonough? <laughs> it was great and I loved it. So aggressive. We're the so the hard hit the hard hits coming coming here. <laughs> don't hold back on us don't, here now, Nathan. Hold, <laughs> I want to see more movies like this. So, I mean, really the big theme I walk away from with this movie is like that male friendship and that, I mean, something I think we can relate to uh, directly here is kind of that classic uh, trope of a lot of male friendships, they're not talking to each other, right? There's no communication going on. It's like, do we really know each other and their struggles we have? Like in this one, Colm is definitely dealing with something. I mean, something snapped in him where he's just like, I have to make a big change in my life. And he just doesn't really communicate it very well with Patrick. And Patrick doesn't really understand, like he's never understood, like they say they're lifelong friends, but they just don't have that connection of like their deeper selves, right? Like, is that a big theme you got it out of the movie? Like, Partially, I think. Um, for me, what works so amazingly well about this movie was that it was so richly layered in terms of its themes, right? So you're looking at, obviously there's a surface level, the plot of one day this friend just wakes up and decides like, Hey, we're not friends anymore. And the fallout from that and trying to reconcile, you know, potentially decades of um, that relationship and, and, and kind of square that away with like the, trying to figure out, get to the reason why. And it's a compelling character drama um, in and of itself in that case, but also it's dealing with some, some really deeper themes here as well. Um, the, the movie is set during the Irish civil war, which I believe I, I had to look this up. I didn't know off the top of my head. It was between, I think 1922 and 1924. Yeah. Um, somewhere in that range. So it was um, 1920s, early 1920s. Um, and I think it was pretty clearly meant, to, like the relationship of these two men was pretty clearly meant to be uh, an allegory for um, specifically the Irish Civil War, but then deeper than that, you know, war in general in terms of yeah. the senselessness of how these things start, Right. Um, and turning like so many wars, especially civil wars, where you're turning essentially brother against brother, sister against sister, um, people you've known your whole life. And you come to this point where uh, one or other party, there seems to be at an impasse. But if you look back at the wars throughout human history and so many of them, every one of them has been started for some ridiculous reason. Um, some, some reasons that have been, that were forgotten or that were nonsensical. Um, but I think there was something like the absurdity of, of war and, and the absurdity of how these wars begin and that some, and the, 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 triviality and the banality of how these 
conflict starts. Or if you look at Colm, what he was saying was he was trying to explain why he ended the friendship. And he was saying, you know, essentially, like, I can't waste my time just sitting here, literally shooting the shit. Because they were, yeah. he, was, he was saying one time about how Patrick was like talking to him for like three hours or something about his donkey's dung. Yeah. <laughs> and he makes some joke. He makes some comments like, well, that, well, that shows you how much you were paying attention. I was actually talking about my, uh, my pony's dung. Yeah. Um, but he talks about, um, he brings up specifically Mozart because he's a musician as well. He plays the, uh, the fiddle and he's like, I need to do something with my life. I need to leave behind this legacy and I can't, I can't focus on doing that if I'm distracted by you. And it seems like we will get into that later, but like it's such a such a banal, such a trivial thing to end lifelong relationship and to turn other people's worlds upside down because this has an effect on other people around them as well. Um, but but really, that whole their whole relationship is really you know going a high level. Man's inhumanity to man, but really a not so subtle critique. This is probably one of the best, one of the finest anti-war movies i don't know i've ever made but in for sure in the, in the last 20 years where it's just talking about sure. like how absurd and ridiculous these conflicts between between people are between other on an individual level or on the level of nations and i think um his sister siobhan um carrie conlon at one point is talking to calm and he says something like oh your brother's being ridiculous or and she's like all men are all men are ridiculous to me. Like mm-hmm. you're all being, you're all being ridiculous. You're all being crazy. And I think that for me, that inter- that exchange was really kind of the crux of the movie. Where, yeah, of course, if you look at the human history, and you look at the human history. If you look at human history and the history of wars and the reasons why they're started, it's just it's maddeningly ridiculous. The reasons that we will, you know kill our brothers for a piece of land or because somebody somebody's pride was hurt or something so i think that was one of the prevailing themes um in in the movie and it it hit it hit really hit really hard it wasn't immediately apparent to me it was about halfway through the film i realized they kept bringing up the the war which was the irish civil war because they were off the mainland not off the because ireland is 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 an island but they were an island off the island (laughs) Well, I mean, without a doubt, you have essentially this entire island community who is so detached from the war. Like, the war doesn't exist on their island, but literally a few hundred feet away over the water, they hear the gunshots, they hear the cannon fire, and they they kind of forget that the war is going on because they'll be walking along their path, they'll hear cannon fire, look over, see an explosion, it takes them by surprise all the time. And yeah. they even say in the movies, like, we don't, really know like why they're fighting or anything the cop has to go exactly. over to do some executions to help with executions then uh call him asked him like well well what side is doing what execution he's just like oh honestly i don't, I don't know i'm just like it's a little job that he's excited to do <laughs> which is like i, I feel like kind of shows that <laughs> the community all the people in it are kind of boring and don't have a lot going on so they have an opportunity to do something like that they just don't care but at the greater allegory for the war is that they're really not invested in it and they don't know why things are happening and apparently like i i didn't really read too much about the the actual irish civil war there but yeah they said it was very complicated it like they 
they learned it in school and it's like kids are walking away still confused over why this thing really went down. There's a lot of uh, intricacies in it. And he even here, everyone has an interest in the, these two friends not being friends anymore. And nobody really understands why exactly, because it's kind of ambiguous and vague, the reasons Calm gives. But yeah. as the movie progresses, people just want to stay out of it. As soon as the two of them are like in the same room, they just sort of start looking in different directions. They have no interest in what's going on between these two guys anymore. It's yeah. like that indifference that's like inherent in this community. It's such a great it was such a great commentary and so subtle again on the senselessness of these wars. Like people are like, Oh, well, why is this war going on over there? Nobody knows. Right. And, ob and obviously like nobody, they're trying to get to the heart of like, well, why did Column, you know, break up with, yeah, with, with Pedrick? Like nobody really knows. And there's these really obscure and even Colin himself sometimes is having trouble really articulating yeah. the why of it. And it's like, it speaks again to that. Just the, the senselessness of wars, like why, why are we sending tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of people to die over reasons that people either were muddy to begin with or don't even remember the cause of, right? It's, it's in, the whole absurdity of the the relationship breaking up and the absurdity of everything going on in in Ishiran is a perfect microcosm yeah. for the absurdities of war. Down to the actual, you see, like there's allegories for like civilian casualties as well, right? Our unintended casualties, like obviously, um, Pedrick's, um, donkey, Jenny, um, chokes on one of, we'll get to this later. chokes on one of, uh, Colm's fingers. Yeah. Um, but there was also people like when Colm, he starts to, he invites other musicians, um, from, uh, I think it's a university or something to come in and they're kind of jamming together and he's kind of passing on. He's trying to teach, you know, what he's learned over his, his years. And the one guy Pedrick picks up on the wagon as he's leaving the, the pub. And he tells him the story about how there was a message that his, I think it was his father got hit by a bread wagon and he's trying to break, essentially break up that relationship. But you see yeah. like, Oh, it's almost like these are, even if they're not dying, it's an allegory for like unintended, like casualties of war. Like, Oh, you're going after this target. That's, ancillary to your actual main target, right? How, and drawing people into the conflict, right? Yeah, like Patrick can't talk to Colm directly because he's going to cut off more fingers. So he has to go over, he has to attack his friends instead, like after these high-value targets, and he sees Colm in the pub, like they're all having a blast. The, all the musicians, everyone's invested in, in yeah. the music and <laughs> hanging out. He's just like, well, I'm going to I'm gonna do this. And it's a huge turn of character for, for Patrick as well to start being mean to people. And I think that's for me, like seeing his turn from the beginning of the movie to like kind of the nice guy of the Island. He's, he knows everybody. He's very uh, involved. Like he's just he's very, very personable. content. Personal. Yeah. Exactly. Thank you. And seeing him degress into a mean person to ultimately like completely break apart by the end was also really tragic. I mean, there's all sorts of tragedies in here, not least of which is Jenny the donkey, who, yeah, you mentioned before, <laughs> she perishes on one of these fingers. It's just like a really totally sad. senseless. Yeah, I don't know if we explained before, like when when Colm um, ends a relationship with Pedrick, Pedrick just like can't grasp it in his head and he keeps talking to him. So Colm uh, threatens him. He says, every time you talk to me from now on, you just won't listen to reason, but every time you talk to me from now on, I'm going to cut off one of my fingers. And then like, he's like, 
he's talking to his sister later on and he's like, you think he's really serious? He's like, yeah, he's serious. Just leave him alone. But he tries again anyway to go talk to him. Well, that's, that's, that's the crazy thing is that how could you be serious about cutting off your own fingers if you talk to a person, right? Like it's completely absurd. Yeah. And like, that's the thing that got me too. like in a movie, in a world where I've seen movies like the Saw movies and Cannibal Holocaust and all these movies with crazy gore and violence yeah. to the point where like you start to get a little bit desensitized to, to the movie violence. Um, and then to have something like, Oh, I'm going to cut off my fingers if you talk to me and like, okay. But then when he actually does it and it still has this emotional gut punch in a way that I oh, thought yeah. I was desensitized to this movie violence, but like this is really, really impactful and really, really like it's, it's really it's very impactful because it's really directly commenting on mental health and, and illness like this is the self-mutilation happening and to right. what seems like fairly reasonable people and from from Patrick's perspective it's like this is his friend he's known forever he knows who this guy is there's no way he's serious about doing this but he's so calm is so afflicted that he would actually proceed with doing this and you think, I mean, he's, he sums it up. He's just like, oh, I think he might just be a little bit depressed, right? It's just like yeah. he's, he's fairly dismissive of it. And it seems reasonable that Patrick would continue to be like, well, like, what? Like this can't be serious, but he's serious. And wh when the thing, first finger arrives, you know he's not joking around and he struggles so hard not to talk to him anymore. But obviously the movie keeps going down yeah. that path. It's interesting because I was looking at him. I, I was, it's obvious like watching it it's like yeah they're dealing with like mental health issues here it wasn't one of the main lenses i was watching the movie with but it's interesting how that that level stood out to you more mm -hmm. and like to me it was like more of the war allegory but like literally there was uh, a direct reference like column cutting off his fingers there's a, there's a saying obviously like cutting off your nose despite yeah, your face yeah. yeah which means doing something that you think is going to hurt someone else without realizing or caring that it's going to hurt you as well and it was like this literal manifestation of like cutting off my fingers despite my hand in this case. And in this situation, music is his passion and why he stops being friends with this guy ultimately is so he can write and focus on his violin playing. When he removes a single finger, he's he's hobbled from this, right? He can't play it as well. And then he removes all of his fingers and he can't the play the hand, violin yeah. <laughs> at all anymore. So it's like, yeah, he's directly like... Uh, affecting uh, now granted this is after he writes you know his quote-unquote masterpiece piece of violin music the banshees of Inisherin, and it's like with that maybe he feels like kind of completed he's completed that one part this is a piece of music mm. that's going to last forever in his mind maybe i think this ties into one of the other main themes that i wanted to talk about as well this idea of legacy because column is constantly talking about legacy in his reasoning for breaking up with Pedrick, um, one of the things he does, there's that confrontation in the bar where Pedrick gets drunk that one night and he goes up and, and confronts him again. And he talks about, he's like, Oh man, you know, I've, I've been nice, you know? And, and Colm says, nobody remembers nice people. I was like, and he goes like, well, I remember my mother and, and my father. They were really nice. Like, I remember like my sister is really nice. I'm going to remember her. And he's like, nobody's going to remember them in like 50 or 100 years, but they remember people. He specifically brings up Mozart, right? Which is, again, e pretty egotistical 
to oh, be yeah. comparing yourself to Mozart. <laughs> when you think about it, he was making like a lot, an argument that I think like a lot of us probably think about, especially as we get older, we think about our legacy, what we're going to leave behind and what people are going to think about us. Are people going to remember us in a, in a thousand years when they, you know, we have this podcast. It's probably part of that kind of anxiety <laughs> um, related to death. But uh, there's, I think there's something a little bit deeper and darker about Columns um, threatening to kind of cut off his fingers. Essentially, he's um, he's got that anxiety of leaving behind that legacy, but he's blaming his what he what he perceives as a lack of a legacy. He's blaming it on on Pedric, right? Yeah. He and he's essentially finding an excuse. It's like, oh, if you talk to me, I'm going to cut off my fingers. And then if if he cuts off his fingers, he won't be able to play anymore. And if he can't play anymore, then the pressure of trying to create that legacy is gone, right? So in a weird kind of twisted, manipulative way, he's essentially, he sees there's a responsibility on himself, self-imposed responsibility perhaps, of creating this legacy, in his case, a musical legacy. He writes that one song. Presumably, you want to write like a whole oeuvre, a whole like library, like Mozart, like that he brings up. Yeah. But by creating this Im- impossible to follow scenario, and he knows deep down that Patrick is not going to be able to not talk to him because they were they were best friends. Yeah. For all those years, so he's essentially manipulating his friend into a way to take that sense of responsibility for creating a legacy off of himself. Um, it's kind of a really roundabout, very manipulative way to essentially let yourself off the hook in that sense, even though it was a hook that you put yourself on. But I think there was that whole conversation between about, you know, who's going to remember nice people. You know, we, we tend to, we tend to think about legacy as like, Oh, these big important, I built this structure or I wrote this book or I, you know, I, I conducted this symphony. Um, But I think it was making a very human point about the legacy that matters is about, being kind to people like pay like like Haley Joel Osment paying it forward you know mm-hmm. those are the things that actually matter not having your name written up there with Mozart right yeah. i think that's both it's an arrogant approach to legacy but it's also an unhealthy approach to legacy right we shouldn't be trying to do things to get your name remembered we should be trying to do things to improve people's lives yeah. and in that way even if your name and most of us, our names are not going to be remembered in a hundred years, but that legacy of kindness does pay forward, right? That's right. It does it does ripple forward, and and if people were more like Patrick in the beginning, then you know we wouldn't have war. They wouldn't have conflict there on on Inishirin, but we wouldn't have wars in general, right? It was a tie back into that kind of you know human conflict um, motif as well. Yeah, I really liked your point of. Like he's putting it on Pedrick. Like he's he's essentially blaming other people for effectively yeah. his own like shortcomings because he's obviously a, an accomplished violin player. Like he has the skills. He could have been doing this for many many years. And quite frankly, I mean, the movie makes a, a very specific point of saying they meet up every day at two p.m. in the afternoon. What they do before bed is, is essentially they're on their own. It's like you can't tell me that he uh, come wouldn't have enough time in his day to spend a bit of like an hour or two working on his music before or even after that because they're not going to be at the pub all night every single day. And it's just like, 
Yeah, I mean, and also the, the 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 pure ego and the arrogance where he's calling out Mozart, and he references well like the 18th century at at the end of the conversation. Uh, Siobhan is just like actually it was the 17th century yeah. he was around in. So it's like <laughs> this guy is just kind of so deluded, but he's set. He's so focused, like like he has blinders on on this one thing of just like he has to do this this one piece of music and that would kind of be fine like if he had the sort of the common sense to be like listen for the next week or two i'm going to be focused 100 percent on this music yeah don't talk to me don't do this don't do that take himself out of that because like I, i've seen that in, in life before as well like you just want to focus on one thing you know you're going to yeah, be exactly busy here and there and people will understand that wait but he does are you right breaking up with me <laughs> listen we're not gonna be able to record for the next couple of weeks i really gotta focus my sundays on something here i gotta write the next big thing here. you gotta learn how to play the fiddle and then write your opus <laughs> it shouldn't take more than a couple of weeks oh my goodness but i i also see the other side of it is that you do spend time pleasing others right and Sometimes you put others in front of yourself. I think it's a very easy thing to do where it's just like, oh man, tonight I'm going to work on, I mean, we, we try and write, we try and do some creative uh, like outlets. And instead of writing or say this podcast specifically, it's like, I'm going to edit this podcast. I'm going to spend two hours doing this. Then again, offer to go out for dinner with a friend. Well, I'm going to go out for dinner with that friend because I want to make them happy and I want to be social and stuff instead of focusing on my own thing. And then all of a sudden, three weeks have passed since I've worked on the podcast or, or my own creative outlets. Oh, yeah. There's always an ex- there's always an excuse, right? And I, and I think we've been – I don't want to make it sound like Colm is like the villain of the story. I think no. it's, it's more complex than that because I think some of the things he's saying too, even though he's comparing himself to, to Mozart or like putting himself like, oh, I want to achieve that level of greatness. I think there's something to be said for, yeah, we – you do sometimes need – time alone or you need sometimes time to you know work on whatever your own project is and i think that uh his motivations to me personally they were they were relatable right especially as as i get older yeah i I have kids and i think about you know i I spend time thinking about like what are the things that my kids or or, you know maybe eventually my grandkids what are they going to remember about me what what is what am i going to leave behind for them what's that legacy going to be even if it is not even, I think it would be perfectly uh, fine or even amazing if all of our legacies were legacies of niceness, like like Pedrick was arguing. I think there's a really heartbreaking scene where um, Dominic, who's played by was it Perry, Barry Barry Cogan Corgan? Yeah. You, what is it, Corgan or Cogan? Uh, I'm saying Cogan. I don't see an R in his name, but Barry Cogan. K E O K. I'm going to say Kogan, even though that's probably incorrect as well. There's no R. Dominic, played by Barry Kogan. He's a younger gentleman. Got some great comedic lines that the, the staff with the hook on it. <laughs> like, yeah. What do you suppose <laughs> this is for? It's like, you think it's for hooking things, the length of the stick away. <laughs> it's like, like McDonough's, it's uh, mixing with all these other like really heavy themes. Above all, this is a dark comedy. Um, yeah. And Martin McDonough excels at the dark comedy. Why do I keep putting the in front of everything? I said, I'm gonna, I'm like, am I getting older? Is like, I'm gonna start talking about the Facebook soon. It's like that's or the Twitter, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the TikTok. Yeah. 
<laughs> um, but they're, they're hanging out and Patrick's always super nice to him. He lets him stay over at his house when his, after his father, um, beat him there with a kettle, which he wouldn't have minded so much except for the spout. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's sober. <laughs> and apparently, yeah, um, super dark, but apparently his father was also sexually abusing him, um, yeah. which comes out, they call it, yeah, they, they make reference to it as like, it was fiddling with him, but it's like, this is, this got really super dark really fast. Oh yeah. But then like. Pedrick and, and Dominic are talking and, and Pedrick's talking about how he um, scared off that one gentleman, that musician who was jamming out with Calm and he told him his father died. And Dominic looks at him and is like, that's terrible. Like, yeah, like he, yeah, he didn't see the humor in it at all. He's just like, that's really mean. Well, when he goes home and finds out his father's not dead, he's going to be super happy. He was like, you know, I thought I used to think you were nice, but now I, I, I don't know if you got mean or if you were just never nice to begin with again, that commentary on like how those conflicts can, we get into a situation where we start to do things that maybe we swore to ourselves. We'd never do or thought we'd never catch ourselves doing Yeah. Um, part of that, that human nature when we, we feel we've been wronged or we feel that we're owed something and that we start behaving in um, both destructive and self-destructive ways. And, and again, like the conflict and the war and how we act in ways that are going to be damaging not only to our our opponents or our per- perceived enemies, but also to ourselves, like the collateral damage to the people around us. And we like there's literal collateral damage. You talk about like modern warfare and like you look at you know you drop a bomb, right? Now there's drone strikes. You're getting civilian casualties around. And I think this was a an allegory for yeah, you're if you're gonna launch any kind of war there's going to be unintentional casualties, unintentional consequences. You're going to hurt other people. After you enter a conflict, there's some piece of yourself that is going to be lost, is going to be destroyed that you just, that you can't hundred percent get back. And I wanted to sort of go back to that, that initial point of, we don't want to make Calm the villain of this movie. Mm-hmm. He's not necessarily the villain. Like Patrick is, like equally to blame here where he's pretty incorrigible. If he would have just laid off maybe for a couple of weeks, let calm cool down. Maybe that's all he needed. Right. Like you were saying before. Yeah, exactly. Like if, especially after the first finger, when you know, everything is serious, <laughs> if he would just lay off, but he's just as stubborn as Colm is like the two of them are kind of perfect for each other in that way. They're both very stubborn. They will not accept what they have here. And Patrick really goes down that dark road. He does become mean and he does become like the villain uh, of of this movie in, in a way. Like he just, he keeps bringing it forward. And the other side of it is that he's living with his sister and his sister at one point asks him, it's like, do you, do you ever feel lonely? And he just looks at her like, what are you going on about? He's like, he can't deal with two people suffering like mental breakdowns. And he's just like, I, I can't remember his exact lines, but he's just like, I, I like he just dismisses it entirely. And I noticed in that shot, he is trying to leave the house. She is framed in a mirror just over to it, to his right-hand side. And the mirror has a crack that's bisecting her. Like she is yeah. torn between, like she has her own issues. Like she is lonely. She wants companionship. She can't find, like, uh, like she's often derided for not being with a man. She can't find that. And she's kind of like, She's even further isolated from the community. Like she wants 
she doesn't want everyone in on her business. Well, she also like part of it too is like she wants to find her own career, which she ends up getting, right? It's like she has an op- job yeah. opportunity. It's not just about finding a man, Brian. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> and then later on, that same mirror, I mean, when she does leave the island for her career, and it's kind of telling as well that she's leaving the island to go to a war zone for a job because that's more appealing than sticking around <laughs> yeah. this community of, of isolationists. It was like, that's telling. And then it's a heck of a commentary. Patrick comes home, he finds Jenny dead, and he absolutely, like, he breaks. And he literally breaks the mirror that had bisected his sister earlier into a thousand pieces. So now his reflection is completely shattered. It was like, there's no repairing that mirror now. Before, the mirror was usable with just one crack in it. A person is still you know, salvageable, like she can be rescued. I think that point there, the mirror breaking, he is beyond hope now. And he basically goes over to Calm. He's just like, tomorrow at 2 p.m., because 2 p.m. is their meeting time, I'm going to burn down your house, regardless if you're in it or not. He's willing to commit murder. Like, he's willing to murder this guy. It's like, even at the very end of it, you know, he brings the dog back because there's still a glimmer of niceness in him. But for him, he says, he's just like, we're taking this to our graves. Like, he's fully embraced that this is never going to happen. Meanwhile, you can't stop but think, in a couple weeks, come, he's not going to, like, he's done his music. He's done that, like you said, if he only give him a couple weeks or something to lay off of him. But he refuses to do that. And now it's created a permanent rift in their friendship. And this yeah. guy is unhinged. He's not going to accept it from anybody anymore. Well, even... At the end, Calm knows that he's coming to set fire to his house. He he sends after in retaliation, essentially for Jenny, like the, losing both his sister Siobhan, who leaves to go to uh, I think Ireland Ireland proper, um, to get a job I think at a library, and then Jenny dies on one of because what happened when when uh, Calm cut off his fingers, he went to Pedrick's and and uh siobhan's house and literally threw them at the door you heard the, like the it was almost like a knocking at the door like how hard he threw them but i guess they weren't home at the time and jenny the donkey ended up um choking on one of those fingers dying as a result again that kind of that allegory for collateral damage in in warfare without a doubt um but then he tells him i'm gonna burn down your house tomorrow too whether you're there or not please leave the dog outside <laughs> and he go. Yeah, so there's again, there's like almost a gentleman's agreement, but you see Colm, he's sitting inside the house as Patrick sets the house on fire, and you think, oh, he's accepted that fate, but then you come back later and you see, oh, he had smashed open a window with a chair, and he's standing down by the by the ocean, have their final confrontation there, where Colm almost seems a little bit conciliatory, and he sees almost maybe a little, little guilty because he sees that his friend has changed his, his friend used to be the nice the nice one used to be they called him was it dull or or dim or yeah. something where he wasn't known for his intellectualism i think at one point dominic uh, used the uses the expression touche and and uh Patrick's like what to what and he's like oh, touche it's french so he was really nice guy and he sees this change in his friends from, from what's happened um but he also sees that the Patrick is he's past the point of no return where he's not going to let this go anymore. Before he was still trying to talk to Colm. He was still trying to, you know, go back to the way things were. And you see that, that the circumstances, whether 
intentional or unintentional, that, that damage, uh, whether it was collateral or not, it crossed a line and it was a line that Pedrick felt that he couldn't come back from. And so I don't know if there's going to be any more to what degree the story is left open, whether they're going to be yeah. literally at each other's throats or they're like the friendship's over and they're just not going to help each other anymore. Or they're going to ignore each other um, to what degree uh, that is, is going to happen is, is, is left ambiguous. But I think that that larger allegory, you look at, you know, what, what do they call the troubles in Ireland? Um, you know, centuries later, that conflict, you know, between Protestants and Catholics still going on up until, you know, I think was it the the eighties? It, it kind of reached its mm-hmm. its its fever pitch um, with, in terms of violence. But you see that that divide still still going, like, and that that's a conflict in between you know, like Ireland and in England, really, that was going on for centuries um you usually see that like how it's how it's embedded and how there's again that that um that metaphor for the troubles in in ireland um specifically but the deeper conflicts of you know of, of war and just people fighting with each other for no real good reason and then we have mrs mccormick who is ever present throughout the entire mrs. McCormick. film as- as kind of like she's kind of like this, like she's an older lady who just wanders the island slowly, but she's always in the background of scenes. Like she does interact with people. People try to avoid her. Like she creeps them out. Uh, Patrick especially, like just hides behind a wall at one point to get away from her. But, you know, she's ever present. And she kind of becomes like the literal banshee of the island because earlier, Calm tells Patrick, is like, what's the title? Of, like tells him, my my song is called the Banshees of Inishrin, and Patrick's first thought is, "There's no banshees here. Like, what? Like, why? How does that make sense? Right? Like, he's very literal. Yeah. And then you have literally kind of like Mrs. McCormick filling that role where she's telling people, "It's like, yeah, death is coming to this island." And that's just before uh, Donkey, sorry, Jenny the Donkey uh, dies. Donkey. And well, it's not Shrek. <laughs> Right. <laughs> that's that's offensive to Irish people. You can't assume that they're that's that's Shrek is Scottish. Come on, Brian. Scottish, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then um Dominic they find dead in the lake. And that's one of the big things. Did Dominic kill himself or did was it truly an accident? The film doesn't address it directly, but it may leave some hints like what do you what was your impression out of it? I think it was pretty clearly suicide. I think that was the whole Yeah, yeah I think it was ambiguous. Well, it was the, I don't think it was ambiguous at all. I think they put those clues like a, he was being abused physically and sexually by his father. B the one person that he looked up to Pedrick as an quote unquote, nice person, but essentially a moral person turned out to be um, not nice. So like the one person on the Island that he thought he could look up to, he lost that hero. And then C um, he was, uh, he made a pass at, Siobhan, he asked her out. There was an age difference. And she let him down. Like, she was kind of mean to him the whole movie. But when she let him down and said, like, she let him down, like, super gently. She was super nice. Oh, yeah. About the whole thing. But you could see in that moment, like, I think that was kind of the last straw. Not, it's not, obviously not her fault. But for him mentally, I think, with all that was going on, when he says, oh, I have to go do something over there now. You realize later the thing he was talking about was killing himself. Because he had, there was no safe harbor for him. 
Siobhan and, and Patrick were his only safe harbor from his father who was abusing him. And she left the island and Patrick turned out to be not the um, nice person or the hero uh, he envisioned. He had no more safe haven and he, and he killed himself. Another uh, casualty of this war between Calm and uh, Pedrick. Without a doubt. Did you have anything else to add before we get into ratings of, of this film here? There was another idea that I wanted to just briefly touch on. This idea, uh, we talked about it before, where Pedrick was seen as, um, was it dim or dull? I think the, the word they used was dull. Essentially, dull, they, yes, they called Pedrick dim. Sorry, no, they called Patrick dull. Yes. And everyone thought Dominic was like the dim one on the island, right? Yeah. And that's what made that scene where Dominic pulled out the word touche, like so, like that disturbed Patrick to the core because he's like, oh my God, the dumb one, the dim one is becoming smarter than me. Maybe <laughs> I truly am dumb as well. Well, I don't know if that was the issue, but it just, I think that showed that, oh, Dominic wasn't he wasn't the idiot that maybe people took him for. He yeah. was younger and he was kind of goofy, but he wasn't an idiot. He was just a victim of his circumstance. Yeah, no, I mean, from Patrick's perspective, it was it was definitely like, oh, like I've oh, underestimated so? himself. Oh, like because he's questioning himself throughout this whole thing because people like people have told him he's dull and he's like, I'm not dull. Oh my god, it, maybe I am dull. Oh, maybe I am dumb. Yeah. Like maybe all this stuff like that happened in the movie. Oh, I didn't read that scene at all, but that's interesting. Um, it's an interesting interpretation as well. Yeah, maybe it did uh, push him over. I didn't. I didn't think he was that prideful by that point, but it's entirely possible. But speaking of the whole idea was with with Colm, and he tells him, I think one of the things that Colm was frustrated with or upset with was because Pedrick did seem so content in this simple life, right? And it was almost like looking at him and seeing, like Colin was looking at Pedrick and seeing almost his own failures or his own inability to be satisfied. And you look, and he looked at this person. He looked at Pedrick and he saw, oh, he lives a simple life with a couple of ponies and his donkey and his sister, and he doesn't want anything more than just to come here and and hang out every day and drink beer and and talk about whatever went on that day. And I think maybe there was something frightening about that for Colm, right? Maybe he saw that as he saw Pedrick's contentment as a sort of complacency. He, he mistook contentment for complacency where I think there's maybe it's a more modern concern, but maybe it's not a modern concern. Maybe it go, does go back, you know, farther back than, than I think. Uh, about this idea of, you know, putting that pressure on ourselves to, you know, do something more important with our lives or like go keep pushing ourselves beyond, you know, like to to not be just content with what we have, to always keep wanting more. Maybe it ties into themes of uh, maybe not in this movie, but overall themes of like consumerism, right? Where we constantly told like, no, you need to get more and more. You, you shouldn't be content with what you have. And maybe he sees this, you know, he sees himself reflected in Pedrick. Here's this simple man living a simple life and he's contented and Colm can't find that same contentment. And he's looking for some way to essentially rationalize 
his his legacy or what he sees as you know his important thing he needs to do that he sees himself as maybe, maybe there's a kind of self-importance in there that's reflected in i'm sure we've all felt that way right where we look at somebody you know like you grow up in a small town and some people are contented there and some people want to go um you know see the world and maybe there's a tendency to look at people who are content with their lives as you know as as simple or dull and i think this film roundly critiques that right like if you're happy going to the pub every day drink a pint of beer with your friends and talk about uh, what went on in your day there's no reason why like that's there's nothing wrong with that that's not a bad life it's not bad to be content with simple yeah. pleasures in life and i think there was a important commentary to be had in the film about that yeah there's some interesting imagery uh in Colm's uh house uh, especially on the rewatch of this movie, like there's a lot of masks on the wall and like hanging from the ceiling and it's like yeah. kind of alluding to his struggle with his own identity. And then there's even Ooh. like at first I thought there was like he was in a puppets or something like the marionettes because there's things hanging from the ceiling yes. until you see one that looks like it's literally a hanged man. Like it's a it's a puppet that's been hanged by its neck. You're like, oh, he has some thoughts of suicide going on as well. And especially when Pedrick is like, I'm going to burn down your house. And we see the house is on fire and Calm is still sitting inside. Like he's at that point, he's undecided if he wants to die or not yeah. to pass on that legacy. Like what better way to, to go than that there? It's pretty brutal. I think, uh, yeah, several times whenever Calm goes to confession with the priest and the priest mm -hmm. asked him, is, is the despair back? And at first he says, no, it's pretty good. And then later on in the movie, he's like, yeah, it's coming back a little bit. So yeah, out of uh, we use the letterbox five star rating with a possible heart, which, uh, which has got like a special like on top of that. Where where do you stand on the Banshees of Anishrin? Initially, I gave this a four and a half star rating. Yeah, I might after thinking about it more and going back and watching some of his earlier films, I might end up. This might be a five star film for me. Um, everything about it. The more I think about this movie. I love it more and more um, in terms of the themes. I'm constantly, you know, I started to go online and read other people's interpretations and there's, there's so much more going on than we didn't even have time to talk about today. The cinematography is, is beautiful. Like there's, there's a shot there where like you see the, the entire, like the clouds and then the landscape below. Um, there's shots of the, of the actual, I don't know if, if this was actually shot in Ireland itself. Um, it was. It, it was okay yeah but it was it was ab the, the landscapes were absolutely gorgeous oh, yeah. um the performances like we mentioned like the ev everyone involved in it is one of those movies where even the the background or kind of minor characters everyone was everyone understood the assignment everyone came uh 100% ready again Colin Farrell i think for some reason people may have forgotten that this guy can act like there's a reason he's been in movies in A-list movies, um, you know, since what was it, uh, late late nineties, I guess, early two thousands. When when was Daredevil? When did Daredevil come out? That was uh, around the time when he was really like starting to, to make it. Um, but go back and maybe go back and check out a little film called Phone Booth if you want to see like Colin Farrell's acting <laughs> skills and and only Colin Farrell's acting skills yeah, highlighted. Yeah. Um, obviously, Brendan Gleeson, uh, a treasure. Carrie, Carrie Condon, who I, I finally realized I recognized her from Rome. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, okay. I was trying to yeah, place yeah. her the whole movie. Like, I know where she's from. She was one of the, the Julii uh, clan uh, or family 
in Rome. She was the the daughter there. The show that walked so that Game of Thrones could run. Oh yeah, hundred percent. I I didn't realize we were going into this discussion, but yeah, Rome. Totally. If you like Game of Thrones, <laughs> go back and watch Rome instead. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then Barry Barry Corgan. Every time we see this guy, I think he was in the um, the cut clip of the he played the Joker in the Batman last year. The 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 scene was cut, but then released online later on. It was bang up in that. He was great in. Uh, wasn't a huge fan of the Eternals. It was pretty middle of the road, but he did a great job in that one as well. Um, everything I've seen this guy in, yeah, he continues to knock it out of the park. I want to see like a movie led by by Barry Cogan soon. And I just want to throw out that because Barry Cogan was yeah cut out of the Batman, but Colin Farrell in the Batman as the oh Penguin, yeah they're both in the Batman under <laughs> an ungodly amount of makeup, and I'm so happy. That you get to see like Colin Farrell's full acting range and whatnot, like in in these other films, yeah. especially this film, because it's it's like a crime to hide him behind that much like latex and whatnot, so you can't see his face and you can't see like his acting drop through. Hey, right? what are you doing over here? <laughs> uh, but yeah, for me, uh, when I first saw this uh, a few months ago, it was four and a half easy. Uh, that I watched it again last night is like, there's no reason this isn't a five-star film. Yeah. So I just bumped it up there. It was, it was a five-star. Like this is a contender for one of the top films of, of 2022 uh, for me, but also for critics and audiences. I think uh, Ron Tomatoes has the critic rating at 97%, which is, uh, seems really, wow. really high. Uh, I think it deserves it. The Ron Tomatoes audience rating of 76%. Uh, and I could see like an audience struggling a bit with some of that really dark humor and kind of the, the ambiguous ending as well would kind of throw things off. Yeah. Um, and obviously some of the events are like pretty, pretty gnarly throughout the film. Uh, IMDB has this movie at a 7.8 and Letterboxd has a average of 4.1 among its users. It's pretty good. Uh, so very highly rated. Uh, Martin McDonough. I mean, this guy's movies are brilliant, and this is no difference. Like, this stuff is is fantastic. There's a lot of, lot of care to put on screen into every single frame. It's it's fantastic. Yeah, I can't wait for what's next from Martin McDonough. I hope that he keeps using his muses. I, I know Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell were both the leads in in Bruges as well. Reunited here. How many, how many years later? What was that? 2008 or something? 2008 for In Bruges, yeah. <laughs> Over a decade later, and they still, that chemistry between them. Yeah. Still amazing. Yeah, it's, again, like you were saying, incredibly deep themes, but also very, very dark humor. The humor in this, like all of his movies, is very, very dark, very, very, very morbid. So if you're into that, it's right up your alley. If it's not your cup of tea, if you don't find the humor in somebody cutting off their fingers and throwing it at their best friend's door, <laughs> maybe this movie isn't for you. But I'm counting down the days until I can pick this up on physical media. Well, count down no longer because it's already out on store shelves. It's already out? No. Oh, yeah. I thought it was just uh really? Oh, man. I'm Go buy it at Walmart for 25 bucks right now. <laughs> what? Yeah. Your Walmart shill. <laughs> they got to you, didn't they, Brian? It's the, it's the only place in town that seems to sell movies anymore. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I might have to start a Martin McDonough um, section in my in my uh, physical media collection here. 
honestly, you might already be halfway there. Like, if you have Southern Psychopaths, uh, Three Billboards is an easy purchase because that movie was really good. And then in Bruges, I mean, four films, that's an easy victory. It's time to head out to the stores after this. Done. 